Recording in progress. Okay, good evening, everybody. So our topic for tonight is uh, the history of Jerusalem in the Ottoman period, the Ottoman period. And so Ottoman control begins in the year 1517. In 1516, the Ottoman Sultan Selim the Grim, that's a great name, Selim the Grim, the Grim Reaper, uh, he, con- he defeated the Mamluk army. And on March 20th, 1517, he arrived to take possession of Jerusalem. Ottoman control of the city would last brief interruptions for the next 400 years, oh. 1517 to 1917. Yeah. All right. Salim confirmed the traditional tolerance of Christians and Jews and then prayed on the Temple Mount. So, you know, that's what people do when they conquer. They go to the Temple Mount to show I can go to the holiest of places and do my thing there. When Salim died in 1520, there was no struggle for succession because, in fact, uh, all the potential heirs to the throne other than one were brutally murdered, including Salim killing some of his own sons, I think. Uh, His son who survived was a 25-year-old Suleiman, who would go on to have a great and illustrious career, become Suleiman the Magnificent, and have a nearly 50-year reign at the top of the Ottoman Empire. Suleiman was committed to embellishing the sanctuary on the Har Habayit and rebuilding Jerusalem more broadly. He was hailed by his wife, who was Slavic actually, as the Solomon of his age. He's the Shlomo Amalek of his own time. Is Suleiman a play of words on Solomon? Suleiman, Shlomo, yeah, Solomon, yeah. Uh, were you saying that the Ottomans were Muslim? The Ottomans are definitely Muslim. However, as we shall see, uh, the Ottomans are not always the most pious of Muslims. Sometimes, yes. In Suleiman's case, yes. Later on, we'll see some of the the, uh, the leadership will flout Muslim rules and allow certain vices that are not really allowed within their tradition. No, no. Um, okay. So everything about Suleiman was on a grand scale. He was magnificent. As I said, his reign lasted from 1520 to 1566, 46 years, a long time. And the old city of Jerusalem belonged to him more than to anyone else. He rebuilt the walls of the old city. Remember, they had been destroyed 300 years earlier in a strategic decision by the Frankish conquerors. So for from about 1228 until 1517, or a little, a little in the 1530s, there were no walls around the city. Can you imagine Jerusalem without walls? It just, you know, it's hard to grasp, the idea of Jerusalem without walls. He did it, firstly, to secure the city from attack. We shall see so, sh- soon enough that there was reason to suspect that new Christian crusader types would want to attack the Middle East and conquer the holy city. So you need physical defense. It serves a practical purpose. But it also was to add to his own prestige, that he shall be the one to rebuild the walls, the Homo Yerushalayim. What else did he build? An aqueduct that led drinking water into the city and even constructed nine fountains, nine drinking fountains, including three on the Temple Mount. One of the most important things at the Koto is the water fountain. Okay, it's hot out. All right, you want to drink. So that's that's Shilom, that's from an earlier time. Yeah. Okay. What what time are you talking about? We're talking now the 1520s, 1530s. The walls were supposed to include David's tomb on Mount Zion. However, 
The architects failed to do that. As you know, if you've been to Yerushalayim, Mount Zion, Hartzion, is not in the old city. It is in Israel proper with the so-called uh, green line running flush against the city walls. And when we discuss Mount Zion at length, I'll discuss this, uh, why this happened. But al-regal achat, um, Suleiman wanted that to be in the enclosed area, but the architects pocketed the money that was needed to extend the city walls a little bit further. And they were caught and they were executed. They're right outside the Jaffa Gate. Okay, so the tour, the tour guides will tell you that their bodies were buried right outside the Jaffa Gate. However, uh, other scholars, including Montefiore, will tell you that that's not really those the tombs of the architects. Those are some scholars from Sfat who moved to Yerushalayim, that it's a, a tour guide's myth. All right, well, tour guide's myth or not, people, people hear about it. Okay. In 1553, Suleiman, the second Solomon and king of the world, decided to inspect his work in Jerusalem. Now, bear in mind, he's living up in Istanbul. All right, He does not go to Jerusalem early in his tenure. But later on, after he has accomplished a great deal there, he finally wants to see it with his own eyes. But wars got in the way. As is what often happens, kings don't get to see their greatest successes. And like Constantine, he never was able to visit the holy city. So Suleiman the Magnificent never saw the walls that he so-called built. During his time, the Dome of the Rock was retiled. Can you imagine how many tiles were used to, re- to retile the dome? How many thousands of tiles? 450,000 tiles. That's a lot. Okay. There were hereditary dynasties of architects who moved into Jerusalem in the 1500s and would dominate the city for the next 200 years in terms of public works. The population tripled at this time to about 16,000 including 2,000 Jews. Now, 2,000 Jews is a nice number, but it's still only one-eighth of the total. Uh, That's not a good percentage. Later on in the Ottoman period, we'll see the Jewish percentage of the overall population will go up, 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 and eventually in the 19th century become an absolute majority. An important point in discussing the relative uh, claims of Jews and Arabs to Yerushalayim is the fact that there's been a Jewish majority since the 1850s thereabouts, but it was about one-eighth of the population in the 1550s. Um, There is a constant trickle of Jewish refugees coming from the West, Sephardim, basically after the Spanish and Portuguese expulsions of Jews, so Jews are moving to the Ottoman Empire, Various parts of the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the Greek regions, the Turkish regions, even Egypt, but also some are moving to Eretz Israel, including some who are moving to Yerushalayim. Is this a reaction to the Inquisition in the 16th century? So it's a, it's a reaction to two things. One, just the, the fact of the expulsion meant that Jews who never converted out, even pro forma, had to go somewhere and where are they going points east, including you know, Jerusalem, but also that people who did convert uh, superficially, and who may have been targeted by the Inquisition in the early six, in the early 1500s, now have to run as fast as they can away and get away from Catholic-controlled areas, going to Muslim-controlled areas, with the Ottomans being very welcoming of them. Okay. How did Suleiman pay for all this building project that he had going on in Yerushalayim? The answer is not by taxing the Jerusalemites. They're dirt poor. Who do you tax? The Egyptians. 
because Egypt is a fairly prosperous country at that time under Ottoman control, and that's where the money is. Who's in charge of the money? A Jew. Abraham de Castro was a Jewish refugee from Portugal. He's the man who handled all this money that was coming from Cairo, going to Jerusalem to fund public works. Okay. Well, in the uh, late 1400s, early 1500s, in Spain, we just mentioned the expulsion and the Inquisition. Who's in charge? Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand and Isabella had two goals which were intertwined. One was to cross the Atlantic and discover a route to China or India, although they discovered the New World instead, Christopher Columbus. The other was to conquer Jerusalem. That the Spaniards did not give up on that old crusader dream of taking the holy places for Christendom. So Columbus supposedly told the king that everything that would be gained materially, financially, from the voyage across the Atlantic would be used to fund a crusade to conquer Jerusalem. How do you like that? Well, it never happened, though Ferdinand's grandson, Emperor Charles V, uh, inherited the crusading ambition and talked about liberating Jerusalem, which in turn prompted Suleiman to build the city's walls. As I mentioned, it was a matter of prestige, but was also a matter of the physical security. If there are Christians who are menacing from Europe and say, I'm going to come over the Mediterranean with a big army, you got to do something about it. Okay. Question. Yeah. There was a sizable Christian population in Jerusalem at this time? Yes, there was. So wouldn't it be a fear of these citizens being really covert enemies? That is always a concern. And this evening we'll discuss an episode where um, people on the inside, or almost on the inside, give the enemy a uh, a way of getting into the city, of uh, circumventing the walls. So there, it is a concern that if there is an outside invader who shares an ethnic or religious background with people who are on the inside, that there's going to be collaboration. Absolutely true. Yes. Okay. Well, Sephardic Jews stream into the Ottoman Empire as a result of Spain's conversion or expulsion policy. So this, as I mentioned, the Jewish population is on the rise. Now, Suleiman elevated Islam in Jerusalem at the expense of the other two religions. But due to dip- European diplomatic considerations, he had to show some deference to Christianity. Jews, by contrast, had no clout at all, and their religious interests were not, eas- were not so well defended, and in fact were often easily dismissed. So, Jews worshipped around the walls of the Temple Mount and on the Mount of Olives and in the Ramban Synagogue. But Suleiman wanted to make some some seder here, some some order. So he commanded that a spot be prepared along the western retaining wall for Jewish worship. This became the Kotel, the Kotel's invention of Suleiman the Magnificent, 500 years ago. He creates an alleyway uh, about 11 feet wide and maybe 100 feet long by the retaining wall. And since the Jews had a tradition that the Western Wall never was destroyed, or the Kedusha, the, the Shekhinah never left the Western Wall, which was really referring to the Western Wall of the Heichal, the actual temple building, but it was easily transferred onto the retaining wall built by Herod. Presto, you have the Kotel Maravi, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. Um, it made sense, that spot, to be a, a site of Jewish worship, 
because it wasn't far from the cave synagogue that I had mentioned a few weeks ago. The cave synagogue was along the Western Wall, but further to the north, opposite the spot of the Kodesh HaKodashim, which today you can find people davening in the Kotel tunnels uh, at that very spot where the cave synagogue used to be. The downside uh, it, also, the positive side of, of establishing and creating the Kotel was that it was near the Jewish quarter. The downside is that it was flush against what? The Maghrebi quarter, which was an Islamic North African slum neighborhood from the 13th century. And getting to the Kotel wasn't always so convenient because you had to wind your way through uh, hostile terrain. And as we go through uh, the next few centuries, that will become an issue. Okay. Suleiman replaced the Franciscans at David's tomb with Muslim custodians, the Dajani family, who would then change their names to the Daudi family, David. David's tomb now goes from being a Christian site, the site of the Last Supper, and the upstairs room of the Last Supper, to being the grave of an Islamic prophet named David. The Jews also then took it to be a holy place of Kever David. Is it really Kever David? Not at all. It's completely fake. But there are people who believe it. Okay, so it becomes a holy place. I... Are you talking about the cenacle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but now we don't have any credence to that at all, do we? There's a yeshiva there. There are Jews who live there. I was there a few months ago, and I don't know. It's, uh... I thought that was Romania. No, I mean, there, there's a Jewish presence on, on Mount Zion, and there's a certain re- reverence for so-called Kever David. There is a sarcophagus with a parochus on top of it in Hebrew writing, and I'm sure there are people who go there and think this really is Kever David. However, same David, same David, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a prophet, he's a David the prophet in the eyes of Islam. Okay, but... Um, Suleiman quickly realized that he needed French allies against the Habsburg monarchy. The Habsburgs, the Austrians, are duking it out in southeastern Europe for control of territory with the Ottomans. So the Ottomans want French support. The French are supporting the Franciscans. So you have to put the Franciscans back into charge of Christian shrines. This was the first of many capitulations which the Ottomans would would have to give to the European Christians and would ultimately undermine the entire Ottoman Empire. Capitulation is the, the the key word. To give up, to throw in the towel on this or that issue of religious rights. The Ottomans are weak. They need Christian allies in Europe, so they give capitulations. Fine. Um, in the 1500s, you do have a couple of you know, weird moments. Like, for example, David Ruvaini caused a stir in Jerusalem when he declared himself the prince of the Ten Lost Tribes that he was bringing back to Zion. He died in a Spanish dungeon a few years later. Uh, he was one of many quirky fellows who were messiahs or pseudo-messiahs who show up in Jerusalem, uh, come and go, and do not bring the redemption. Okay. Protestants start arriving in the late 16th century. Why are Protestants especially interested in Jerusalem? Well, because the Protestants are emphasizing the Bible, and the Bible emphasizes Jerusalem. So unlike the Catholics who emphasize iconography and ritual, and they have Rome, the Vatican, the Protestants don't believe any of that stuff. They are are scripturally oriented, Old Testament oriented, so therefore they're going to want to have a presence in Jerusalem. The earliest Protestants in Jerusalem are English traders. However, as we'll see later in tonight's presentation, uh, 
not too many Protestants actually stay in Jerusalem. They come on pilgrimage, they see what they're looking for, and they go home. The absence of a large uh, Protestant presence will prove significant later on with regard to the British protection of Jews, but that's for about 20 minutes from now, so keep that in mind. Now, Sephardic Jews are building up life in the Jewish quarter with activities surrounded, uh, centered around the four synagogues. Have you been to the four synagogues? Okay, in the, in the Rova. So what are the four synagogues? The Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Istanbuli, Eliyahu Anavi, and Emtsai. What is Emtsai? What does that mean? Middle. The middle. Because it was in the courtyard in the middle of the other three. It was the last one built. It was, it was an open area that became a synagogue. So the four synagogues are in the, in the Rova. Today you can go there. They still exist. And it's a section... Um, up, sort of up the hill, if you're in the main square in front of the Churva and you're facing towards, going towards the Kotel, uh, down the hill, you go to the right, up a little hill, that's the area of the four synagogues. Okay. Uh, at one point, the Ottoman governor closed the Ramban synagogue and turned it into a warehouse. Now, the Ramban had been the main synagogue for the Jerusalem community for a couple of hundred years. It was shut down. It would later be reopened. All right. English Puritans were interested in building a new Zion in America. But they were also interested in the original Zion. Okay, so yes, there are places of Salem, like the Salem Witch Trials, Jerusalem, Zion. Or in every state in America, there's a, there's a Jerusalem, a Salem, a Zion. Uh, these are from the old days of the Puritans. But they also were interested in what's going on in the land of Israel. The millennium is coming. The end of time is coming. Predictions about when that will be are rampant. And maybe the Messiah is already here. Who are we referring to? So Shabtai Tzvi in 1648 announces that he is the Messiah and that Judgment Day will arrive in 1666. Well, what is the attitude of the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Jewish community, towards the Messiahship or the, cla- the claims made by Shabtai Tzvi? So the Jerusalem Jews were desperately poor. And when you're a false messiah, you have a lot of followers on Instagram or TikTok, whatever. Like you're very popular. You have an audience. And when you have an audience, you can monetize that audience. So he could raise money from the wealthy Jews of Cairo or elsewhere on behalf of the Yerushalmin. So they're happy to take his money that he was able to raise from the wealthier communities abroad. But they don't accept his messiahship. So the, 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 the rabbinate of Jerusalem will place Shabtai Tzvi into Cheru. Um, when he, Shabtai Tzvi ultimately can... Stam what he predicted. When, when Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam, the Jerusalem Jewish community was happy that their nemesis turned out to be a charlatan. In other words, they had bet against him and they bet correctly. All right? Okay. In the 17th century around the same time as you have Shabtai Tzvi, there are other sort of weird, ascetic-type religious figures. Jerusalem became the Mecca of Sufism and counted 70 dervish convents. So peculiar Islamic figures uh, are abounding in Jerusalem. The Ottoman Empire was in full decline by the late 17th century. They had to cater to the demands of Europeans And each country was defending the interests of a different Christian sect. So every European country has its preferred uh, Galachim, who are living in Jerusalem, and they want to protect them. The question is, 
who will be granted supremacy in the Holy of Holies for Christianity, known as the Church of the Holy Sepulcher? Will it be the Catholics, the Latin Catholics? Will it be the Eastern Orthodox? Which type of Eastern Orthodox? The Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox? Or will it be some other group? Every group wants control of the Holy Sepulcher. And how was it determined who controls what aspect, what spot within the church, within the compound? It's going to be shared. It's going to be divided and shared. But how do you know who controls what little area? The answer is if you clean it, it's yours. If you clean it, if you take a little broom and clean it, that inch is now yours for your denomination. So there were battles. You're saying 17th century, that's the 1800s. We're, talk, we're talking now late 1600s, early 1700s. Oh, okay. Because, because the Ottomans were probably going down the tombs by the end of the century. Yes. Catherine the Great had a big war. Yes, yes. In 1774, there's a major capitulation. So we're talking now in the early part of the 1700s. The, the Ottomans still control who runs the church. Because after all, they are the temporal authorities in Jerusalem. But they have to make a choice. Who has predominium? The, uh, the uh, you know, ecclesiastical control. And the denominations are fighting for every inch. When the Ottomans lost on the battlefield in 1699, when they got almost as far as Vienna, they signed the Treaty of Karlowitz. And the great powers were now allowed to protect their brethren in Jerusalem. It was a disastrous concession for the Ottomans to have to make. They have to admit that we don't have full sovereignty of our own territory, that you, the European powers, can now boss us around about how we conduct our affairs in the holy places, and you, your, uh, your foreign uh, officials will have some protective custody over these ecclesiastics in the, in the holy city. Well, Jews will now have uh, a group of ecclesiastical types who moved to Jerusalem in 1700. Who am I referring to? Yehuda HaChassid. So Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid comes from Grodno in Poland in 1700. He dies within a few days of arriving in Jerusalem. So like Yehuda HaLevi, who supposedly dies the instant he got to Jerusalem and crushed by a, 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 a horseman, Yehuda HaChassid, in fact, not, not as a, a, a legend, but in, in true history, he dies within several days of arriving in Yerushalayim. But he brought with him 500 followers. And the Jewish community at that time only numbered about 1,200 people, 200 Ashkenazim and 1,000 Sephardim. And this 500 Jews who didn't speak the local dialect, only spoke Yiddish or Polish, uh, really didn't blend in and didn't have Parnassa. It was a burden upon the community that they couldn't bear. Also, these newcomers were suspected of Sabbatean heresy. Because after all, Yehuda HaChassid is like a charismatic type. The charismatic types in that, in that era were always accused of Sabbatean deviancies. Okay, so Jerusalem was chaotic and dangerous in the early 18th century. And the Ashkenazi community was devastated by thefts, by imprisonment, by bankruptcy, and the shul was burned down in 1720. Why? Because the government was angry over non-payment of debts by the Ashkenazic community. Because it was destroyed, the synagogue became known as the Churva. It would not be rebuilt for over 100 years. Um, 
it would be destroyed again in 1948 by the Jordanians and be rebuilt again uh, in the early 21st century uh, and be finished around 2010 for a dedication in the last uh, decade or so. The Ashkenazi community basically was devastated. The Sephardic community survived in, you know, to live another day. And Ashken- the, the uh, Jerusalem community in the, in the 18th century was largely a Sephardic community because of that. The population of the city dropped dramatically to about 8,000. And the, on an annual basis, the governor of Damascus would show up to collect taxes and pummel people into submission. Pay me or you're dead or I'll beat you up. Jews had no backing from European powers, so they suffered greatly. The, the Christians all had some country supporting them, so they could rely upon that support to stop the, uh, the, the Damascene governor from ripping them off. But the Jews had no protexia, no protexia. What accounted for going from 12,000 to 8,000? Chaos. Bad administration results in a, a steep decline of population. People don't want to live where they don't feel safe. And they, they definitely did not feel safe in Jerusalem of the early 1700s. In 1766, a pilgrim showed up, a Jewish pilgrim, and said that persecution and extortion increased daily. It reminds me of what Rabbi Brenner said about the Jewish community in Venezuela. It's better, better than it will be tomorrow. Okay, so it's getting worse every day. Christians hated each other even more than they hated the infidel. So this was the time when they were locked up in the church at night. So 300 people were locked in the church of the Holy Sepulchre every evening, and food was passed through a hole in the door or up through windows via pulleys. If you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they'll show you, you know, up on the second floor, there's that window where there was a ladder and they put the food through the the window and then somebody took away the ladder. It was craziness, the way even the slightest change would result in a denominational warfare. Each sect had its own latrines. Yeah. No, no, Christians, Christians, Christian monks uh, and clerics. Each, each denomination had its own latrine. You couldn't go to the bathroom in the, other, uh, in the other group's bathroom. And some denominations had no latrine at all. So where do you go to the bathroom? You hold it in? I, I don't know. The smell of the church was, was, was horrific. Um, the, the, <laughs> the French Catholics and the Greek Orthodox fought sometimes to the death for predominium, meaning control of the, of the institution, notably on Palm Sunday in 1757, which led to the death of numerous people. Then, as you mentioned, there's a war between Russia and the Ottomans, and the Ottomans lose to Russia in 1774. There's a peace treaty signed. Uh, the Russians are led by Catherine the Great and by her partner, Prince Potemkin, and they forced the Ottomans to recognize Russian protection of the Orthodox population of the Ottoman Empire and Jerusalem in particular, but all Orthodox, not just Russian Orthodox, that now the Russians are the big granddaddy of the whole Orthodox Church. There is a growing Russian obsession with Jerusalem, which will ultimately lead to a European war. Which war am I talking about? The Crimean War in the 1850s is all about Russian obsession with Yerushalayim. But before we can get to that, the French, Napoleon. Napoleon, 1798, sets out to conquer Egypt. And he's successful. The decay of the Ottoman Levant was ripe for conquest by a civilizing reason uh, reason of the Enlightenment. 
so Napoleon thought, that we can take European Enlightenment civilization and use it to conquer and to bludgeon the, the dying and decaying Ottoman Empire. France was at war with England. And the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, wanted the Middle Eastern expedition as a way of cutting off England from India. You know, India is the crown jewel of the empire. Well, if you can control the Ottoman regions, you can sever England from India. So let's go on, let's go on an expedition. And in February of 1799, Napoleon invades Eretz Yisrael. How many men does he have? Not that many, actually. 13,000 men and 800 camels. It's a lot of camels. He looked forward to standing on the ruins of Solomon's temple. He was excited by the prospect of being the next coming of Solomon. Everybody wants to be the next coming of Solomon. Suleiman wanted it. Napoleon wants it. Well, the only thing blocking Napoleon from his conquest was Ahmed Jazar Pasha, the Ottoman warlord of Eretz Israel. He was known as the Butcher. Why? Not because he was in charge of the the, the brisket at at, Gourmet Lot. No, it's because, no, 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 not that he killed people. He butchered people who remained alive. That was his chiddush. He would chop off a nose, an ear, an eye, a hand, as a way of intimidating people into compliance, to submission to his rule. So I'm sure he killed plenty of people too, but he also maimed and disfigured a lot of his closest employees, including uh, Chaim Farhi, who was uh, his right-hand man, the Jew. Well, Napoleon lay siege to Acre, to Akko, but was unsuccessful. He won the Battle of Tabor Mountain, like Devora and, uh, and Barak, okay, and made it as far as Ramla, only 20 miles from Yerushalayim. He issued a preemptive statement claiming that his headquarters were now at Jerusalem. And I'll read to you, Sibeg uh, Montefiore has a good quotation from Napoleon. So this was stated on April 20th, 1799. Bonaparte, commander-in-chief of the armies of the French Republic in Africa and Asia, to the rightful heirs of Palestine, the unique nation of Jews who have been deprived of the land of your fathers by thousands of years of lust for conquest and tyranny. Arise then with gladness, ye exiled, and take unto yourselves Israel's patrimony. The young army has made Jerusalem my headquarters and will within a few days transfer to Damascus so you can remain there in Jerusalem as ruler. So here he's in Ramla, not Jerusalem, but claiming he already has Jerusalem Okay, and says really it should belong to the Jews who were deprived of it thousands of years ago uh, by everyone else's lust for for conquest and tyranny. And I'm going to move on to Damascus and leave you, the Jews, in charge of the city, of the holy city. By the way, this is totally inconsistent with Napoleon's behavior a mere eight years later when he convenes what? The Paris Sanhedrin, where he says about Jews what? that they have to regard Frenchmen as their brethren and that Jewish nationality is a thing of the past. And if you are a Jew who lives in France, you must swear allegiance to your French citizenship and ignore, and you can have your confessional religion of Judaism, but basically you have to give up all hopes of Palestine, Eretz Israel. So here he's saying in 1799, oh, the Jews are really a national group in Eretz Israel. I'm going to give it to them. And later, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's just, 
pontificating and uh, speaking in grand eloquent terms. Okay. Who would have controlled Jerusalem if he didn't name the Jews? Did he have the, the personnel to do so? No, he did not. And ultimately, he doesn't take Jerusalem. So we'll see what happens. He, he, he got stopped at Akko. And, and let's, let's, let's see what happens next. So uh, he makes three attempts at Akko and fails because the Ottomans are assisted by a British naval officer named Sir Sidney Smith. And so Napoleon's army is forced to retreat down the coast to Jaffa, and then eventually he hightails it back to Egypt, and from there he goes back to France, claims that he won a great victory, which was a big lie, but nobody was around to prove otherwise. So he, was, he got away with it because it's before telecommunications. But at Jaffa, and I was at the spot where this happened on my most recent trip to Israel, which was an inter, interreligious trip, so it was mostly Christian clergy, they were curious about this, that at Jaffa, what did Napoleon do to his own soldiers? They were injured and couldn't be carried back to Egypt because they would have slowed down the caravan. He had them all killed. He killed off 800 of, he killed off 800 of his own soldiers um, in an act of utter brutality. Okay. Uh, not exactly. So Smith, Sir Sidney Smith, the British officer who basically saved the Ottomans' control of Palestine, then goes to Jerusalem, prays at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, enters the city as a conquering hero. He was the first Frankish soldier to enter Jerusalem since 1244. He was very full of himself. Uh, the, the butcher, Pasha, died a few years later in 1804, at which point in time, Jerusalem descends back into chaos. So again, every once, every few decades, Jerusalem goes through a phase of there's nobody really in control. And those who exert control are just uh, brutal thieves and willing to, you know, to take extortion money from the local population. So Jerusalem was safe and cha- unsafe and chaotic in the early decades of the 19th century. Moses and Judith Montefiore arrive in 1828 to a city which was fallen, desolate, and abject. Now it's dire poverty. They show up and they're really... De- displeased with what they see. Montefiore was the first of a new breed of European Jew who's proud and ready to help his benighted brethren in Jerusalem, meaning he's a European, which gives him a certain political clout. He's rich, so he can throw his money around and his weight around. And he's a Jew, so he cares about the poor Jews of Jerusalem. What does he do for them? Well, first of all, he not only helps out Jerusalem, he also builds up a certain Jewish shrine that is mere three or four miles away from Jerusalem. What is that? Kever Rachel. Why Kever Rachel? Because his wife was barren. She was Akara in La Valad. So Rachel Imenu was Akara in La Valad. She couldn't have a baby. So by by building up Kever Rachel, the hope was that Judith would, would become pregnant. It never worked out that way. Montefiore did not have any legitimate children. But what did he have? He had a maid. Illegitimate child. In his 80s, he sired a child with his like 17-year-old maid. Okay, but these things happen. Okay. Well, except it was England. (laughs) All right. Um, He gave away a lot of charity, but the Jews of Jerusalem warned him, don't give us too much. Because if you give us too much, then the uh, the Turks will just cripple us with further taxation because they'll know about the fact that we have cash and they'll grab it in taxes. 
Montefiore's trip changed his life. He, he came to Jerusalem as a fairly young man. I mean, he was already in his 40s, actually, at that point, but a relatively young man because he lives to be 101. Uh, and he was fairly secular. But he has an epiphany in Jerusalem. He davens all night long. And he becomes a, 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 what amounts to an Orthodox Jew. I mean, yes, there'd be certain peculiarities about his behavior, which would be contrary to the halacha even later in life, but he becomes a fairly pious Jew, a ritualistic Jew for the next 60 years. That's the influence of Jerusalem on making a person more frum. Okay. Well, who else goes to Jerusalem among the Jews or former Jews of England? And when I say former Jews of England, one name should come to mind. Benjamin Disraeli, correct. So Disraeli was baptized at the age of 12, but he goes as a young writer, as a young fiction writer to Jerusalem, riding around on horseback on the Judean mountains. And he visits the city and he couldn't resist visiting the Temple Mount. But bear in mind at that time, the Temple Mount was off limits to non-Muslims. So he tried to hide his identity by wearing a keffiyeh and looking like a Muslim, but he was found out and barely escaped with his life. He ran away, uh, you know, hightailed it out of there, almost got killed. He was developing proto-Zionist ideas, thinking that Jews should be restored to Palestine and that the Ottomans would be willing to sell the country for that purpose. So here you have in the 1840s, early 1850s, a thought that Jews could go back en masse in large numbers to the land of Israel and that the current uh, political rulers would be okay with it. Why? Because they'll make a lot of money. They'll, have, they'll sell the territory, they'll pocket the cash, and the Jews can now build up their national home. This is the Israeli, a baptized Christian, saying this sort of thing. Forty years later, the Zionist movement will begin, begin in earnest and think along the same lines, that it might be possible to negotiate with the sultan to buy Eretz Yisrael, to buy the Holy Land. Of course, that would be proved to be false. It was impossible. Well, in 1831, the Egyptian army, led by an Albanian named Mehmet Ali, captured Jerusalem. So Ali was effectively an employee of the Ottoman Empire, running its affairs in Egypt. But he developed a strong 90,000-man army that then threw off the yoke of its Ottoman rulers and became its own entity, leader of Egypt. And he bursts forth into Eretz Yisrael and captures Jerusalem. And he will retain Jerusalem for the next 10 years until he's ousted in 1841. But he retains control of Egypt. And that dynasty, the Ali dynasty, will retain control of Egypt all the way until 1952. The last representative was King Farouk, who was then exiled by the Free Officer Corps, by Nasser and and, uh, General Naguib and the others, uh, to to a quiet demise in Italy. Okay, well, the Sultan was forced to recognize Ali as the ruler of Egypt, Arabia, and Crete, and his son Ibrahim the Red, not because he was a communist, but because he had a red beard, as governor of Syria, with control over Eretz Yisrael, including Jerusalem. And Ibrahim the Red set up his headquarters at David's tomb. He opened up Jerusalem to European culture, because although he's Muslim, he's an Albanian. 
and he really wasn't much of a Muslim at all. He drank alcohol openly. So this is what, what I was saying before, that certain rulers, Muslim rulers over Eretz Yisrael, were not from Muslims. They were heavily, largely secular and only culturally Islamic, but with a fl- European flavor. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, so he protected Christians and Jews. In 1834, on Easter, 400 pilgrims died in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in a stampede associated with the Holy Fire. What's the Holy Fire? So the Holy Fire is a miracle, or a pseudo-miracle, or a bluff, or a fake, that happens every year on Greek on, on Eastern Orthodox Easter in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the, the, the leading ecclesiastic goes into the tomb of Jesus and comes out with a fire that he says happened like spontaneously, spontaneous combustion. And then they take that fire and they light all the candles and everybody has a candle. You ever see the candles, the Easter candles? Okay. So, and the whole church is now not on fire, but ablaze, you know, with the, with everybody's candle. But the, the initial fire is supposed to come miraculously, the so-called holy fire. It's, it's a farce. It's, uh, they, 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 they take care of it behind closed doors and nobody sees what they're doing with a match and they turn, they turn the fire on. Okay. Well, the, the governor, Ibrahim the Red, was physically present in the church when the stampede happened and barely escaped with his life. But people were not happy that the government failed to protect Christians and that so many had died. So 10,000 Christian peasants instigated a rebellion in the, in the, uh, in the hinterland. And the residents of Silwan helped these peasants who were, uh, who were rebelling by showing them a secret passageway into the city near the Dun Gate. Have you been in that passageway? I have. Okay, so it's not Hezekiah's tunnel. It's another tunnel that goes from Ir, what was Ir David, Silwan, underneath the Dun Gate and comes out in the archaeological garden by where the, the non-Orthodox now have their Kotel, the Ezrat Yisrael. Uh, I think it was been closed the last couple of years, but I, I was there. I didn't actually go through the tunnel, but I went into the, the, the opening at the, at the northern uh, end of the tunnel. So this was a secret way of getting into the old city without having to get through the gates. That's the same tunnel they dug out for the uh, escaping Jews in the Roman period, right out below the city. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so Ibrahim and the Albanians eventually crush the rebels and retake the city. And when they do that, Ibrahim wants to boost the Jewish presence and do favors for the Jewish community. So he allows the Sephardim to rebuild the Benzakai synagogue. And he allows the Ashkenazim to rebuild the Churva. So the Churva is rebuilt in around 1837. But it was a poor town, Jerusalem, and people don't really want to be there. The population had declined considerably, but Jews are moving in. So the Jewish percentage of the population is going to go up, 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 given that Jews are moving in and others are leaving. Russian Jews are fleeing persecution and begin settling in Yerushalayim. Well, Ibrahim then made a bid to conquer Istanbul. So now the Albanian Egyptian uh, leaders want to take over the whole Ottoman Empire. Each side, the Sultan and the Albanians, are making promises to the Europeans in a bid for military support. 
the Sultan issues a noble receipt promising equality for all minorities. Now, equality for minorities in the 19th century in the Middle East, that's a pretty progressive idea. You know, I mean, equality for minorities is something that doesn't even happen in Europe till the 20th century. And uh, still an issue today in parts of the world. So Ibrahim had to counter that with inviting the Europeans to establish consulates in Jerusalem. So both sides of this war are telling the Christian Goyim in Europe, here, you can have rights in the holy city if you support me in my battle to take over the region. So for the first time since the Crusader era, church bells were allowed to ring in Jerusalem. And in 1839, the British Consul General, William Turner Young, arrived to represent London's interests in the Holy City and to convert Jews. So this is an important point. These consuls, running these consulates, are there to, to protect the Christians of that variety, to represent their government's interest in the Middle East, and to convert Jews to that variety of Christianity. Well, the British under Lord Palmerston and the Earl of Shaftesbury decided to have an aggressive diplomatic posture vis-a-vis Jerusalem with the goal of protecting Jews. Why protect Jews? The answer is because the French had the Catholics. The Russians had the Orthodox. But there aren't that many Protestants in Jerusalem. So if they're going to protect anybody and therefore develop, cultivate political influence, who are they going to protect? Ah, the Jews. So the British decided to protect the Jews in a selfish uh, decision that had missionary overtones and for their own uh, political advantage. But who benefited from this? Russian Jews. Russian Jews who are coming from Tsarist Russia are now under the political protection, diplomatic protection of the British consulate. Okay, but there's a problem because the British have the London Society for Promoting Christianity Among Jews, a.k.a. the Jews Society. It was founded in 1808, but a Jerusalem branch was founded in 1839. And this society puts together a hospital and a pharmacy and a clinic in Yerushalayim near the Jewish quarter. What's their intention? Oh, we'll give you health care, free health care, if you take on Jesus, if you bow, you know, bow down to the cross. So are there going to be Jews who, who take the deal? Yes, there will always be some who for free, you know, for free bread and free health care will become a sheikh, it's a mishumid. Okay, fine. Montefiore comes back in 1839. Both he and the Earl of Shaftesbury are British proto-Zionists. But whereas one was trying to turn the Jews into Christians, the other was trying to give out tzedakah and keep the Jews Jewish. So the Shaftesbury wants to make the Jews into Goyim. Montefiore wants to make the Jews into Jews and to make sure they have tzedakah in their pocket. Okay. Well, France backed Ibrahim. And the British backed the Ottomans. And the British won. So the Sultan's forces retook Jerusalem in 1841 and kicked out the Albanians. When they did so, Jerusalem only had 13,000 residents, of whom 5,000 were Jewish. 5,000 out of 13,000, that's a pretty high percentage. That's what, 40% or something like that, or 30 some odd percent. That's very, very good. That's the highest percentage Jewish it had been since when? Since the days of the Beis Hamikdash, okay? Uh, it had been a really long time. And it's looking better and better every day. By the 1850s, 1860s, it will be a majority Jewish. Majority Jewish. 1841. So who's coming? So Russian Jews are coming. 
And there are refugees from an earthquake in Sfat. Sfat had a bad earthquake in the 1830s. And as a result, uh, the whole Kabbalistic community was kind of in in decline. And people came southward to Yerushalayim. Fine. Okay. Well, how do the, the, uh, the British try to convert the Jews? Jews are not likely to bow down to a cross, to a statue with Jesus on it, to say the Lord's Prayer in English. They don't know English. What do Jews know? They know the sitter, Hebrew. So the British had a great idea. They created Christ Church, where there was no cross, no iconography, just a menorah. The davening was in Hebrew. Even the Lord's Prayer was recited in Hebrew. Bizarre. Very bizarre. But that was the intention to, to attract Jews to Anglicanism. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Now, the seven European consuls from the various European countries in the 1840s Jerusalem lived in grand style. They walked around like they owned the place. And they were very happy to use any pretext to impose their will on the beleaguered Ottoman governors. So here the Ottoman governors are supposedly in charge, but they're really not in charge. Really, the European consuls are throwing their weight around, giving elbows wherever wherever they turn. The next British consul general was James Finn. He bought up a lot of land all around the city, and he learned fluent Hebrew and Ladino in his efforts to win over Jewish converts. Finn did convert several Jews, which caused a big stir, and Montefiore had to come back and develop his own healthcare system, Montefiore healthcare system. Okay, it's not first in the Bronx, it was first in Jerusalem in the 1840s to compete with the Jews society, meaning the Christian, the Anglican missionary groups. Fine. There was nearly a blood libel in uh, 1847 in Jerusalem, but the Sultan nixed it very quickly because the Sultan had already banned the blood libel six years earlier in the episode of Damascus. Adolf Kremu and Moses Montefiore, two European giants of the Jewish community, traveled to Damascus to plead with the Sultan to let the Jews go, let my people go. And this diplomatic overture was successful. We've discussed it in prior lectures. But one of the concessions that the Sultan made was to admit openly and make a, a, a firm a, a decree that the blood libel is false. And if you try to bring it back, it will be stamped out. Okay. In 1844, Warden, uh, Warder, Warder Crescent became the U.S. Consul General in Jerusalem. Warder Cresson, C-R-E-S-S-O-N. His only qualification for being the Consul General in Jerusalem was that he believed the end of days was coming in 1847. So here he arrives in 1844 and is convinced that the millennium, the end of time, the apocalypse, is three years away. Fine. Other diplomats in the State Department informed President Tyler that Crescent was a religious maniac and a madman, but he was already in Jerusalem, so it was too late. Many Americans were attracted to Jerusalem. Freedom of religion led the followers of uh, led to the flowering of many new sects of Christianity in, in, in America. And new sects have fresh millennial ideas. And that's why so many Americans came across the ocean to Eretz Israel, to Yerushalayim, with really wacky ideas about what was going to happen next. 
There were the pilgrim strangers on Mount Zion. There was Joseph Smith's Mormon representative on the Mount of Olives. There were American evangelists heralding the end of days. Cresson, the consul general, served from 1844 to 1848. And then, what? He converted to Judaism. Bizarre. And renamed himself Michael Boaz Israel. His wife went back home to America and tried to have him declared insane. There was a trial in America over his, his sanity. It was in Philadelphia. So the city or the, the foundation of the Constitution, freedom of religion, where his argument is, the Constitution says, man is free to believe whatever he wants in the religious realm. The wackier it is, the more kosher it is. America believes in this stuff, freedom of religion. He lost the trial, he won an appeal, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, the marriage was ended in divorce, and he uh, went back to Israel, married a Jewish girl, a Sephardic girl, promoted agricultural colonies in Emek Rafaim, okay, where today you can get good ice cream and dairy restaurants, and was buried in the Mount of Olives as a pious Jew when he died in 1860. So a really weird story of, he did, although they all died in, in infancy. So he had no Jewish descendants. Okay, well, Russian ambition in Jerusalem increased. And in 1846, Catholic and Orthodox Easters fell out on the same day. That's a recipe for trouble. There was a fight in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, left 40 people dead. This seems to be an ongoing problem. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, people are dying on holidays because there's always a stampede, a, a riot, a fight. And most pilgrims at that time to Eretz Israel were Russian. The expansion of the Russian Empire was seen as a holy crusade. In fact, the Tsars built a mini Jerusalem just outside of Moscow with replicas of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and other um, Jerusalem landmarks. Like 770. Like 770, which is, was rebuilt in Eretz Israel. Okay. Now, Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe, ready to be defeated or at least exploited. Nicholas I, not a friend of the Jews, whom we've mentioned many times in the past in our lectures as the, the father of the Cantonist system of recruiting Jewish boys into the army of Russia. Okay, he wanted to save the holy places for the Russian God. I didn't know there was a Russian God. Uh, it reminds me of in New Rochelle, where I lived about two blocks from my house. There's one of the, the black churches. The name of the church is the Church of the God of New Rochelle. And I always wanted to know, what's the God of Larchmont or Mamaronik? But um, so, yeah, I guess so. Uh, the, the Sultan was caught between French demands and Russian demands for supremacy in the church. The French want Catholics to be in control. The Russians want the Orthodox to be in control. And when Nicholas's demands were not met, when they were rejected, he went to war, the Crimean War. In March 1853, Britain and France declare war on Russia. And in 1855, Alexander II, after the death of his father, Nicholas, has to sue for peace. Russia gives up hope on conquering Jerusalem. That was sort of a pipe dream. It was never going to happen. But they extracted concessions for the restoration of Orthodox dominance in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which remains true ad hayom hazeh, until our very day. All right? Well, secular tourists started arriving in the 1850s in considerable numbers. Why? Well, the steamship was invented, the railroads are being invented, it's easier to travel. And the Ottomans, having been saved by Christian soldiers, are now very weak. The Islamic empire is 
tottering at the edge of, uh, of its existence. So a new concession had to be made, namely that non-Muslims are allowed on the Temple Mount. Who is the first non-Muslim to go with permission on the Temple Mount? The future King Leopold III of Belgium in March of 1855. He almost was, was killed by the Sudanese guards who were offended by the presence of a Christian on an Islamic holy site. The Sultan had to order everybody removed so that nobody would attack this Belgium uh, future king. The Europeans began building huge edifices all around the city, in the old city, and soon beyond the walls of the old city. The West had invested too much effort and bloodshed to leave Jerusalem alone. They now were going to go full force into Yerushalayim. Jumania had conquered the West. What am I referring to? Especially in America, this idea of everybody wants to go to Jerusalem. They want to see the old Jewish holy places. Even Abraham Lincoln in Ford's theater, moments before his assassination, mentioned to Mary Todd Lincoln, his wife, you know what, I wish to visit Jerusalem one day. So here you have major figures in the Western world thinking, oh, I, I too am going to go to Jerusalem one day. Not necessarily to conquer, but, you know, to visit, to see it. Okay. Mark Twain went in 1867. That's when he made his famous comment about how, you know, the, the land of Israel has been left uh, desolate and the, you know, it's been nothing since the Jews were defeated. Well, the city will grow in the 1860s, not just in population, but also in its size, in the territorial scope of the city. And so for next time, we're going to see who are the leading forces to build out territorial Jerusalem, what direction, why, and who's going to live where. Of course, one of the major figures will be, man we've been talking about tonight, Moses Montefiore. All right, stay tuned in two weeks for our next class. Everyone have a good evening.